Let's take a one minute break for a stretch. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in a clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. It's like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world. You were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practiced hidden in the forest in sacred solitude, Longchenpa, who perfected samsara and nirvana. In the state of Dharma clad, Trinet Ozer, stainless light at your feet, I pray, grant your blessing so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. Good evening and hi again. Thanks, Emily, for hosting us and starting the recording and all that. My pleasure. So uh, tonight we go through the, the first system of tenets, which begins on page 51. And if it's okay with you guys, I thought I would focus mostly on the uh, section at the beginning where he talks about tenets in general. And then the section at the end where he goes through the, the uh, so-called Hinayana tenets. Oh, and I circulated some a little chart. Oh, where was that? Three things, just three things. Let's see. So, uh, first, did people get a chance to read the additional readings that I circulated from Buddhist philosophy? Very helpful. I really appreciated them. Yeah, very clear, very, very clear. Yeah. Right? Anybody Wonderful. not get a chance to read them yet? Um, Derek, when did you circulate those? I was at 3.34 p.m. on the day before. It was the day after that I didn't circulate them. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, was it last week? Uh, Yes. Anybody help me out? Yeah, I think so. October 1st, perhaps. If you just search by my name in your email, it's probably the only email that'll come up. <laughs> this is a coordinator, believe it or not. She agreed to be the coordinator of the Westchester Meditation Center. <laughs> Yay! Wait, who did? Liz. Liz. All right, Liz. That's so awesome. It was amazing. 
So in other words, that's why she left, because there are like so many freaking emails between. <laughs> so uh, what would the, can anybody find the email? Yeah, so, on October 1st, is it the one that has the two attachments, one where, what are Buddhist tenets, and what are Buddhist schools? Yes, you got yeah, it. Yeah, the subject yeah, line is. October 1st, 2.55 p.m. So close. Thursday. The subject line is the reading, it's a reading reminder. Right, it says RS space PTPS reading reminder. You know, I found them in my file. I, I put things that get sent to me like that in my file folder, but. And, and then you delete the message, right? No. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> um, I just want to have a look-see if I read it. Oh, one is just the title page. Wait, wait, not that one. Anyway, go ahead. I have no idea where where were we going. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, what are the tenets and what are Buddhist tenets? Yeah, so. If one, uh, one thing I found really helpful was his explanation of a, a system, you know, philosophical systems and tenets, um, as being That's sort of a, a limit to what you currently know. That was my understanding. That you know, it's sort of, um, uh, it's artificial kind of, and but it's sort of where you are at a particular time in, in your path, I guess, is sort of how I got to it. There's sort of a boundary that you reach and then maybe you go on to the next boundary. Interesting, like, like a way of sort of uh, eliminating things that you don't agree with and gradually identifying things that you do agree with. And yeah, then, and, but it's not static. It's sort of... Yeah, continually refining those. Right, right. Well, so I'd finding like, your, your boundaries, seeing your boundaries within that, and then perhaps working with that and... Could it be things that you're ready for or that you're not ready for? So I'd like to propose that we focus on the Buddhist tenets, if that's okay. And then we'll look at uh, both uh, Longchenpa and this other text thereby. Instead of going through, you know, the, excuse me, I think it's allergy season for my nose. Um... He gave actually an unusually interesting presentation of the Samkhya system. Some of us have, uh, have been doing these classes for a long time, like 16 years or something. And uh, we've gone through a number of these texts where we have Buddhist teachers going through non-Buddhist systems. They range from the comical and the sort of insane to the uh, more appreciative and uh, uh, in-depth. And uh, I found uh, Longchenpa's presentation of Samkhya to be quite interesting compared to others we've at. But uh, be that as, it's may, as it may, I'd love to uh, go through the Buddhist ones in, in more detail and uh, in addition to the ones that I circulate and I'll 
because I, I think it is so helpful. I, uh, I recommend you getting the book, but it's philosophy. And at the same time, I'll circulate chapter by chapter uh, his presentation of the similar material because it, uh, for two reasons. One is it's very clear and simple, whereas Longchenpa tends to be rather profound and uh, deep, uh, thereby a little bit hard to fathom exactly what he's getting at. And secondly, it provides an alternative uh, viewpoint to these, which is always helpful to refine our understanding. So, excuse me one second, and I'm gonna, I'll screen share the other stuff so we all see it. So let's start with Longchenpa on page 51, and then we'll segue to Losang Gonchok. So on page 51, we have the approaches and their philosophical systems. So he's referring to two things, uh, paths and philosophical schools. The approaches are like Shravaka and Prajegabuddha, Bodhisattva Yanas, and then the philosophical systems are the uh, views of the, in terms of the Buddhist, the Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Madhyamika. A specific analysis of the vast range of philosophical systems found in my own and other traditions has two parts, establishing the general relationship among the spiritual approaches and delineating their particular details. First, the relationship, any detailed classification of the philosophical systems would be endless. So long as the power of people's minds has not been exhausted, there's no end to the possible variations of letters, words, and phrases or to mental analysis. You know, we have uh, 17 people here. We'd have 17 different philosophical approaches just right here <laughs> to enlightenment or to reality. Uh, those tenets can be classified uh, there are tenets that can be classified as distinct uh, but uh, as long as the mind functions, there's no end to spiritual approaches from the journey uh, to Sri Lanka Sutra, the Sutra which recounts his summer vacation in Sri Lanka. You one wonder what kinds of approaches are meant. The same works as the approach of the devas, the Brahma world, Shravaka Prajega, Buddha Mahayana. I have explained all of these. That of the devas is the ten kinds of positive activities, which is, uh, for many of them, is the negative of the uh, is the negative of the negative activities: not killing, not stealing, not lying, not this, not that. While the approach of the Brahma world is that of the four states of meditative stability, which are the four absorptions. Together, these two are known as the approach of the existing situation among gods and men. So these are sort of known as like the common schemes uh, pr prevalent throughout India at the time. The Shravaka approach is that of the Four Noble Truths. The Pratyeka Buddha approach is that of the Twelve Leaks of Interdependent Connection. Pratyasamutpada. 
or the 12 Nidanas, and the Mahayana approach is that of the 37 factors contributing to enlightenment and the other topics that are subsumed within two aspects of non-existence, the non-existence of a personal identity and the non-existence of the identity of phenomena. And we had the 37 in uh, Herbert's uh, from last class. If people remember, let's see, mixing the resting in the nature of mind handouts. Just quickly, let's see. Here's the 37. We have uh, the four applications of mindfulness, body, feeling, mind, and dharmas. Shu means dharmas. Then we have the four renunciations, being a good boy and girl. And then we have the four footholds or fleet fleet-footed ways of being, uh, willingness or intense interest, perseverance or exertion, attentiveness, discursiveness. And then we have the five strengths, confidence, effort, inspection, mindfulness, samadhi, and sherab, uh, prajna. And those transform into go from powers to strengths or whatever. And then we have the seven uh, wings of enlightenment. You know, just like a scheme of lists, like this very formulaic scheme of lists. Then we have the eightfold path. Write this, write this, write that, and no more learning. And uh, let's see, in this vein, the hard essence of secrets explains, which is uh, Enigma Dzogchen text, explains that there are five approaches that accorded with the guidance taking place, the approach of gods and humans, which we went through, Shravakas, Four Noble Truths, Pratika Buddha, uh, Pratija Samadpada, the Bodhisattva approach, the 37 facets, and the two types of emptiness, and the unsurpassable approach, that is the secret mantra. And skipping the quote, all of these derive from two approaches to unsurpassable enlightenment, although they can be considered a single approach with respect to the ultimate fruition. All paths of Buddhism lead to the same goal. There is but a single approach, Subhuti, the approach of unsurpassable Buddhahood. So all the others are just temporary way stations. And uh, in this text, a smaller commentary on the uh, ornament of manifest realization, Abhisamaya Lankara says, the classification into these three spiritual approaches of Shravaka, Pratika, Buddha, and Bodhisattva is intentionally a provisional teaching, not a definitive description of the way things really are. So basically, everybody will become a Buddha. There are traditionally said to be two approaches, the greater approach or Mahayana and the foundational approach or Mahayana. And I'm at the bottom of page 52. Some places, however, it's taught there's three on the top of 53, which we just went through. He's sort of revolving around this issue over and over. And then there's the fourth approach of Tantra 
alternative classifications even of an infinite number of approaches are spoken of and given that there are such infinite approaches there are also infinite philosophical systems each providing proof of the validity of its own theses or approach there are also classifications consisting of a twofold division into outer and inner a threefold into foundational intermediate and greater and more extensive division into nine approaches so all these different versions, but um, and he, he gives a quote that lists a bunch of them. In this context, lack of realization, commenting on the quote, refers to the approach known as the existing situation. That is, as a result of engaging in 10 positive actions and holding them in high esteem, but without aspiring to any state of meditative absorption where remains on the level of gods in the realm of desire or on the level of human beings. So he's going through the outer versions and... Uh, to the next paragraph, skipping the quote, if the 10 positive actions are combined with the four stages of meditative stability, the four absorption states that come after accomplishing shamatha, one can then take rebirth into a particular meditative state, depending on one's mental development in this lifetime with the force of the 10 kinds of positive actions serving as the impetus to that attainment. Skipping the quote, um, and skipping those two, let's see. Let's get to some more interesting parts. Ah, okay. Alternatively, in the middle of the page, engaging in secret contact conduct, rather, the tantra, the potential, refers to the following, the guide of the 16th and foremost spiritual approach. So there's even one version that has 16 approaches. This includes the two approaches of the existing situation of gods and humans, the two non-Buddhist views, the two Shravaka systems of uh, Vaibhashika and Sautrantika, two Mahayana of Chittamatra and Swatantrika Madhyamaka, then the Prasangaka Madhyamaka, and then the Tantras. The lower Tantras, Kriya, Charya, Yoga, and then the higher Nyingma Tantras, Maha, Anu, and Ati, totaling 15 with the approach of the Vajra Heart Essence spontaneous presence of utter lucidity being the 16th. So just here we see it very clearly for the first time what he's been getting at all, all along is that there's actually a, a separate level that's higher than Ati in general, which is what he's promoting and that the tradition that he has uh, been uh, enlightened by and that he then presents is this uh, what he's calling the uh, approach of the Vajra heart essence the Nyantik 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 so there's no fixed number of philosophical systems that can account for the variety of spiritual approaches for there are innumerable ways to analyze and synthesize systems as evidenced by the works attributed to Vajradhara such as tantras and learned masters whose spiritual accomplishments were great. Those of lesser intelligence hold to one interpretation daunted by detailed presentations of an inconceivable number of approaches. They say that such presentations are invalid. They're like cattle saying, since we are bovines and are endowed with horns, everybody else should have horns. You know, it's like saying, because I believe in this system, everybody else should believe in this system. 
None of us do that, I know, but it's just, we're talking about other people. Given that the methods of these approaches entail an unlimited variety of terminology and purpose, the alternative ways to traverse a path and attain a specific spiritual level or state of meditative absorption are incalculable because the Buddha was omniscient and spoke from a knowledge of everything and gave teachings consistent with the attitudes of his listeners, speaking of what would delight and interest them. So he spoke of paths to be traversed and also of no paths, a path involving effort and those that are effortless, paths to free one in a single lifetime, or if you want to take your time to, to free one within an aeon, and so forth. His sacred advice to us was to avoid those who view things incorrectly because they're, undaunt, because they're daunted or intimidated by this vast reservoir of spiritual traditions and instead... Um, and instead to study these traditions with a sense of purpose. I guess that was his advice. Good. So the particular approach is that there's a non-Buddhist system. So before we dive, uh, before we skip that section, let's go to Losong Gonche. And uh, I will find that. What are the tenets? So in the in the crystal clear mirror, sorry, the clear crystal mirror. How could I do that? Losan Gonchok summarizes the various tenets of a number of well-known Indian non-Buddhist philosophical schools. Though he's mostly concerned with Buddhist schools. Um, so Losan Gonchok tells us tenets are established conclusions. That is, they are the end product of a process of reasoning that has considered various possibilities and has tentatively eliminated all but one. They're not mere beliefs. We cannot be real proponents of Buddhist tenets without having studied, debated, and struggled with the implications of our own views. So they're not just like things that you come up with in a, in a casual manner. Tenets are meant to be things that you've really thought about and have a, sort of a system for supporting and uh, concluding with those uh, established conclusions. Let's see. Let's skip ahead. Did the Buddha teach philosophy? Did the Buddha teach these systems of tenets? He says both yes and no. First, we must remember the Buddha taught a lot of different things for a very long time, 45 years. And uh, long after his death, his teachings were collected into various collections in various countries to which Buddhism spread. And the Tibetan tradition has the largest collection of all with two divisions of uh, 108 uh, volumes, which is the conjure that's attributed to the Buddha, and then 225, that's the tenure that's attributed to the Indian masters, such as Nagarjuna and the Sangha. Buddhist schools in general maintain the, that the Buddha was a master pedagogue who deliberately taught different points of view for different types of people who could benefit from their different versions. 
might even be the case that different persons heard different teachings at the same time and place. They were at the same place and time when the Buddha taught, they came away with a different understanding. Interesting idea we've heard before. According to the Mayana schools, this was not merely a matter of different styles or emphasizing different aspects. It sometimes involved views that are in direct contradiction. Here he has a little dissing of the Chittamaja, so I'll skip that. For now, we should just note that the higher schools in particular do not attempt to establish the superiority of the lower schools by claiming that the scriptures upon which the others depend are not authentic to sort of important. In other words, the Madhyamakans who believe that they're the highest view, they don't disparage the Vaibhashika saying that their sutras are not authentic. They're perfectly willing to concede that all of the scriptures and the canons of all the different traditions are, are actually Buddha word. But they can't re represent the Buddha's final thought or intention. So there's this idea that the Buddha taught many things in many places at many different times to many different people. But there's this idea of, of a provisional meaning where he's leading people along and giving them not the full truth because they're not uh, willing or ready to hear it. And at other times he is giving the full, complete truth. So one of the occupations or preoccupations, we could say, of the higher tenet systems is Hermann Eudic's The Science of Interpreting Hermann, Hermann's Literature. It's a complex and interesting study. We'll talk about it later. Some of us have gone through the hermeneutical systems, and uh, it's very helpful to have some understanding of them. In particular, just this idea of um, uh, provisional and definitive, where, uh, you know, in, some, in many sutras, the Buddha said that there's a person, and there's suffering, and there's skandhas, and we accumulate karma, and so forth and samsara is real. You should do everything you can to escape from samsara. Then in other places, he says, they're all empty. They're not real. They're fictions of your imagination. So, uh, let's see. I don't know how interesting to you guys this is, but... Uh, Buddha's teaching is captured in his own discourse. The sutras is not always clear and well organized. It's certainly not systematic. He was not attempting at that time to establish schools, but just to meet the needs of his listeners. So the process of systematization began after the Buddha's death. And the sources of these various tenets of the schools then are as follows. Slightly interesting. Now, uh, I apologize. The way that uh, diacritics display on my computer's Adobe is not accurate. So while this seems to say Vibhayakas, it's supposed to be, be uh, Vibhashikas. The Y is an SH. Vibhashikas rely on this text called the Mahavibhasha, which is a huge compilation, anonymous, of like a number of different 
texts, uh, very Abhidharma-ish type literature. Altrantikas rely on the works of Dignaga and Dharmakirti or Vasubandhu, but he's hinting at is that there's two types of Sautrantikas, which we'll come to as we go through the different Buddhist schools. Then there's two types of Chittamatras. Chittamatras are the mind always, and uh, they rely either on Dignaga and Dharmakirti, although they interpret them differently than the Sautrantikas do, or Adasanga and his brother Vasubandhu. Sautrantikas rely on either Bhava Viveka or Shanta Rakshita. That one got particularly dismantled. The Prasangas rely upon one and only one gentleman named Chandra Kirti, glorious moon. Notable that none of these, that uh, sorry, most of these works were composed in a relatively brief period of the fourth to seventh centuries of the Common Era, which is pretty cool. In like three to four hundred years, you have this sort of um, culmination of the evolution of Buddhist thought, and presumably other Indian Indian systems as well. We're going through this phase of uh, condensing and systematizing there. There's there are uh, various views and uh, coming up with these texts that present them in a very concise and uh, precise way. Uh, let's see, uh, people with different philosophical systems uh, hung out together. It, it was not a cause for uh, uh, separating from a particular establishment because you held a different view. He doesn't say it here, but really what held different uh, religious communities together in the Buddhist tradition was the system of the Vinaya, of the monastic code that they held, how they, how they uh, thought you should eat and fold your robes and do this and that. So the outer uh, manifestation of uh, politeness in the uh, Buddhist monastic sense were really the distinguishing characteristics that uh, upon which people stay together or dispersed. What's the value of doing this? Why do this, you know? And uh, this is an understatement. Systematic philosophy is a Tibetan obsession. <laughs> Tibetans are highly obsessed with this process. And they inherited it from the Indians. It's a disease. In East Asia, they did not have this disease, thankfully. But uh, on the other hand, it has its benefits. Uh, I like this line. This means that Tibetan monk, compared to his uh, counterparts, does a lot more reading, whatever that means. Um, then he goes through the Galupa. Uh, love of debate and this whole idea of uh, needing to understand the view before you meditate so one of the major distinctions between the different schools of Tibetan Buddhism is the degree to which they felt that you needed to understand the view of Buddhism before you could effectively meditate and they he quotes this, if one is ignorant, one cannot meditate. It's, 
meditating without having listened to, and I think by that he means without having understood the teachings, like someone without hands trying to climb a snow mountain. And uh, so study and debate remove misconceptions, sharpen the mind so that meditation can be effective. And this is very different than in the, in the Buddhist, uh, in the uh, Kagyu-Nyingma schools, we see this, these phrases of uh, finding the view within meditation as opposed to finding the meditation within the view. That the Kagyu and Nyingma find the view by meditating. They first start meditating and from that they gradually delve into study and understanding of the view based upon the meditative experience. Whereas the Galupas do the opposite. They study the view endlessly and hope, hope that from that meditation will somehow spontaneously emerge. Sort of joking, but let's see. This is a sort of interesting one about the progression of the different views. Uh, the student who has faith in emptiness but doesn't understand it. So how do we get faith in emptiness? We hear it's like the greatest thing ever. Teachers left and right are talking about emptiness as the ultimate truth and that you need to understand emptiness to become liberated. So we develop faith in emptiness, but so many Buddhists have no idea really what emptiness really is. They sort of parrot little phrases that they pick up, but they don't really understand it. So to really understand, we need to study the, the lower systems and thereby understand, come to an understanding and appreciation of the, the uh, more profound presentation of what emptiness is. And this method guards against um, understanding, undermining students' understanding of dependent arising so they will not wrongly conclude, and this is a, a really interesting statement, they will not wrongly conclude that valiantly established phenomena do not exist at all. I hope you tripped up on that sentence and were like, what? I thought emptiness was the conclusion that validly established phenomena do not exist. I hope so. You should have, because the way they word it is unusual to us. We don't usually say it like that in our tradition. So where is, which tradition is this guy coming from? Yeah, you haven't been following have you? No, 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 I just forgot what I, I, he is Galupa, right? So, yeah. okay, no, I just wanted to confirm because that way in that context, yeah. you could say, all right, that's sort of normal for them, right? It is, it is. And those of us that did uh, Insight into Emptiness can remember the oddities of uh, that author's presentation of uh, the system for understanding emptiness and the uh, the nominal self and how he went on and on about there is a self, the nominal self and so forth, right? Okay, so... Uh, another way of putting this is that Galupas believe that the elimination of our ignorance depends upon accurately identifying and then directly opposing the reasoning, the misconceptions we have about the reality of the self and the world. This is a really important statement that uh, I think all schools would agree upon. I was uh, just going to ask, why do they say it's just the Galupas? <laughs> mostly just because he's speaking that way, and he's also slightly dissing the uh, the other schools for not being thorough enough. 
is, is why he's he's saying the galoop is saving. Um, I did do that. Wow. <laughs> it's that exceptionalism that everybody has, right? Yes. So uh, the elimination of our ignorance, which is the goal of Buddhism, is to is to eliminate, is to achieve enlightenment by eliminating ignorance. And it depends upon accurately identifying our misconceptions and then directly opposing them through understanding or reasoning. Identifying our misconceptions and then opposing them. Very key statement there. Still, it should not be thought that the study and debate of tenets is itself liberating. Just because you're, you know, going through these motions, it's not going to necessarily produce enlightenment. It has to be joined with meditation. It has to be done within a, a system of um, devotion, sort of, to the system that has this flavor to it, that has this this uh, this faith that by doing this, then you will be able to overcome ignorance by letting go of ignorance by identifying it and overcoming it with uh, reasoning or understanding let's see then he goes through how they're studied and he goes through the extremes of the galupa situation where they debate endlessly they're really into this whole debate uh, practice which Kagyu's enigmas are really not that much yet to debate. Uh, it, it, uh, it is uh, an interesting tradition, this, this, uh, the way debate is done in the Tibetan tradition. And uh, a little flavor of it goes a long way, actually, in terms of challenging your understanding. So, uh, you know, one of the reasons why in this class I really encourage people to, like, uh, ask questions, challenge authors that we read, and be really actively wrestling with the material instead of sort of passively receiving it as you might in a church where you're, you know, reading the gospel. You really have to wrestle with the material. Doesn't he say somewhere, you're not just born into this? Right. You, you like other religions, like religions, yeah. And call this a religion. So. Yeah, I think that's in the next uh, the next chapter. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, he, he talks about this interesting uh, situation where uh, Tibetans don't read sutras for starters, hardly ever. They read, and then they don't. They also rarely read, even though he's going to list like what are the root texts, and they're largely Indian authors of the Shedra, the monastic curriculum, are all Indian authors, Indian texts. But uh, most Tibetans in, in these monasteries will read the commentaries by their teachers, or the commentaries by the uh, founders of their school. So they read commentaries upon commentaries, because really the, the texts by the Indian authors <coughs> are commentaries on the sutras. Garjana, Asanga, Aryadeva, Vasubandhu, what they wrote are really commentaries. There are also distillations, though, of sutras. 
uh, you know, the sutras are just incredibly vast, just thousands and thousands of pages. So, uh, you know, literally impossible for people these days to read that many. So it's essential to have these uh, presentations that are much more tailor-made to the current student. Here's the main uh, content of their study. It's sort of interesting. This thing called the collected topics where you have definitions of uh, the basics of reality, like what is a thing, and what is a real thing, and what is an unreal thing, and what is an existent and a non-existent, what is form, and what is sound, and what is impermanence, and so on and so forth. And it also has classifications of different types of mental states and different types of reasons. And then we have uh, uh, the study of the path, has laid out the perfection of wisdom, Prajna Paramita Sutras, using a text by Maitreya called the uh, Ornament of Clear Realization. And look at the years, you know, this is the first one they, uh, they do for at least three years, this basic stuff, boot camp, and then they, for five years they're going to study this text on the path. This one text that has, uh, it's like 30 pages, this text. And for four years they study Chandra Kirti's text on the introduction to the middle way. And then for four years, and, and these are not all sequential. They study a bunch of them uh, at the same time. And then they go through monastic discipline, this uh, text on, uh, by Gunaprabha called the Sutra Discipline, and then Abhidharma for four years. And Abhidharma, interestingly, comes last, whereas for us, Abhidharma comes first. But for them, Abhidharma uh, comes last. Uh, cosmology, meditative states, uh, tarot, tarot, how do you pronounce that, tarot, and psychology. Seeing if you guys are awake, paying attention. <laughs> uh, let's I always thought it was tarot. Tarot, okay, tarot, tarot cards. Like tarot cards. Tarot root, yeah, tarot cards, good. Okay. interesting things about this discussion of the different tenet systems is that it turns out that one of the four schools becomes the sort of standard by which to evaluate all the other schools. And that school is the second one, the Sautrantika. It becomes like the litmus. It becomes the foundation upon which they discuss their different tenant systems. And so they all focus very intently on the Sautrantika. And it's, uh, it's because it presents a, a, like a very thorough and overarching and basic Buddhist worldview. And uh, from there, it's sort of like you can go either left into Chitramatra if you're like a, a liberal, or you can go right into Madhyamaka which, although it means the middle way, is really if you're a right a right person, you know, liberal and but conservative. Yes, there we go. Is that okay to call Madhyamakas conservatives? 
Okay. Uh, so then this famous quote that goes, if you scratch a geshe, there's a sautrantika underneath. Because geshes are all but yamakas, but really at heart or in their bones, they're sautrantikas, which doesn't probably mean anything to you guys. But anyway, you would, why would you want to scratch a geshe is the main problem. Um, Anyway, I was going to go through, he presents a very nice little summary of the uh, other non-Buddhist schools. Sankhya. Uh, it's a, the main dualistic school. There's two main things in the universe or principles. Nature, prakriti, and spirit, purusha. Everything that exists except spirit is included within nature, even subtle states of consciousness. Ignorance is that we mistakenly think that nature itself or something within us is our true self. However, our true self is spirit, pure and divisible, mere witness to events. The reason for the confusion is the very manifestation of nature which occurs through the interaction of the three strands or gunas of which it's composed. I think like the Rajas and uh, I can't remember the other two but uh, those of you that study like yoga or uh, other Indian based schemes that are common these days may have encountered these three gunas uh, let's see spirit is experienced only indirectly uh, reflected to our ordinary mentality through a subtle level of consciousness called buddhi the subconscious awareness. The most common error, therefore, is to mistake that subtle level of our own minds for the immutable and infinite spirit. The goal of their path is to reverse the process of manifestation until even the subconscious awareness is withdrawn, at which point spirit is isolated and ignorance is eliminated. Interesting presentation of their path is to reverse the process of manifestation and isolate the pure spirit until ignorance, everything that's not spirit, is eliminated. Advaita Vedanta is, uh, is the, the uh, principal monastic, uh, monistic rather, school, sorry. Uh, our ignorance is to believe in our own reality, identifying ourselves with our bodies or and or our minds. However, only one entity really exists. It's the infinite Brahman. Sorry, the H disappeared. Brahman. Is, does monistic refer to one God? Yes. Is that what? Or oneism as a one, Yeah. It's just oneism. Okay. And Brahma would be that? Brahma is the one. That's right. There's nothing except Brahma. Brahma. Oh, I always thought they were more non-dual. I didn't, I, I think I've I guess there's different ways of presenting it. Yeah, must be. Uh, the the non-dual way is sort of a more sophisticated way of presenting monism. Uh, you know, where instead of saying there's this one thing, it's saying, well, there's not two. Oh. But, you know, sort of the same. Huh. Primarily one of meditation reveals the illusion in which we live and allows us to shed our identity, become emerged with the infinite. They're also dualistics, blah, blah, blah. 
These other guys, like Sheshikas and Yayakas, explain the primary cause of fear, suffering, and death is ignorance, in which the self is wrongly identified with the body. The self is entity separate from mind and body, and liberation comes from knowing this. And uh, they are famous for uh, identifying the aggregation of tiny particles, which some believe is a relationship then between the Buddhist Vaibhashika school. Jains are similar to Buddhists. Uh, ignorance refers to our lack of understanding about our limits of knowledge and the true cause-effect relationships in the world. So they're into cause and effect and karma big time. Liberation from rebirth is not only a matter of knowledge, however, because karma, this material substance, encrusts the soul and can be removed only through asceticism. Totally into asceticism, knowledge prevents the further accumulation of karma. Where liberation occurs in a state of bliss and omniscience, of being fused with the universe. Vaishnavas, Shaivas, we'll skip through these other mamsakas and these other guys, Goyakas. In summary, Buddhism shares the concerns of most of these schools. The problem of samsara, sorry about that, its basis, delusion, ignorance, its perpetuation by karma, and the path of wisdom that leads from it. In many ways, Buddhism stands in the middle of the views of these schools since they include nihilists, eternalists, and indeterminists. It even forms a middle way, not only between hedonists and ascetics, uh, but in style between the dry rationalists and the ecstatic devotionalists. However, in one way, Buddhism is quite distinct. It defines ignorance in a radically different way, one that is exactly the opposite of most of the non-Buddhist schools in Buddhism. Wisdom consists in, the, in understanding the non-existence of the self, as opposed to the existence of spirit or the true self or Brahma or whatever. That's so. This is what uh, Henrietta was talking about earlier. Buddhism is not a natural re religion that you are like born into because your parents are. You have to choose to become a Buddhist. Is uh, that really true? Well, no. Uh, uh, he. This is the technical. The technical definition of a Buddhist is one that's taken refuge in the three jewels, which is an intentional. Act. So, you know, a Buddhist is simply a person who goes for refuge to the three jewels, which means that a, a person considers them to be the only true haven from samsara. And that's an intentional act that involves knowing some, what samsara is, and blah, 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 you know. So, obviously, this is not something that <clears throat> one can do until one has grown up and achieved a certain level of sophistication. But, but how is that really different from... in? In Judaism or Christianity, you have those rites of passage also. Right, but in Judaism, if your mother is Jewish, you're born you're considered Jewish, right? Yeah. Christianity, but, uh, you know, it's, but still, like in China, uh, you know, until the Communist Revolution, basically everybody said they were sort of Buddhists. They were Buddhist in religion. They were confusion in terms of their sort of social world, and they were Taoist in terms of their their sort of mystical self or whatever, you know. Uh, but children, they're all but you know. If you ask a lot of uh, Chinese people, and they're like, "Well, my um, I'm really Buddhist because my parents are Buddhist, but I'm not into Buddhism." You know, they'll explain it that way, just like a Christian would say, "I was born." or a Jewish person, anyway. Is that an important point 
not really that important. The, the, the important part of it is that a, a Buddhist is a one who's taken refuge in the three jewels. That's a, a pretty important point. Right. You don't become a Buddhist just by like, oh, thinking Buddhism is cool. Right. You know, he's trying to make that distinction, which is a pretty important point. You know, just by reading, oh, you know, oh, I think Buddhism is one of the, you know, it's probably the most sensible philosophy, so I think I'm a Buddhist. That's not really being a Buddhist. Being a Buddhist right. means that you're actually engaging in the path of Buddhism by taking refuge in the, in the three jewels as the way of achieving liberation from suffering right. so understanding that there's suffering and that you want to be liberated and from, and so forth yeah i think it's that's an important point but i think comparing it to other religions and saying they're not like that i'm not sure other religions would you know yeah would say the same thing i mean yeah you know what i mean if you asked a jew or a christian there are certain, as you said, Henry, at a decision points along the way. So, yes, for Buddhists, that's true, but it may also be sort of true for other religions, I guess, you know. Okay. Not, yeah, anyway. For saying that a couple of times. Okay, so here's the... Uh... Switch back to Longchenpa. Sixty-five. We have the systems. First, how they're superior to, to non-Buddhists, and secondly, an extensive analysis of them. A Buddhist is someone on sixty-six. The top is someone who holds the three jewels, the sacred sources of refuge, and accepts the four axioms that define Buddhist doctrine, just like the guy in the other book. It's, uh, I was sort of amazed at the similarity between the two texts, between Longchenpa and Iskalupa, that these two things are what they talk about, taking refuge in the four marks. And yeah, the concept of the three jewels, so he goes through these different ideas of how the three jewels are. So the Hinayana approach considers the, the Buddha to be a sublime emanation, such as Shakyamuni, the Buddha to be embodied in scripture and realization, those two things. The Sangha to comprise Shravakas and Prajega Buddhas, beings who are involved in any of the four stages of entrance and the three stages of dwelling. They have this odd way of uh, distinguishing, distinguishing between the, the phase of entering into a new level of achievement of the path, and here we're talking about stream entry, uh, once returner, non-returner, and arhat are the four stages of attainment in the, in the Hinayana system. But there's a difference between like entering into one of those stages and then accomplishing it or dwelling in it for some reason. He lists them, the four stages of entrance are blah, 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 blah. There's three stages of dwelling or dwelling in the, in the first three. Mahayana concept, um, the Buddha is the totality of the three kayas, the Dharma encompasses scriptural transmission contained in the sutras and tantras, the realizations of one's self-knowing, timeless awareness, including the views, states of meditative absorption, and so forth, associated with stages such as those of development and completion. He's always putting the Vajrayana in there. 
achieve longevity. Every chance you get, put the Vajrayana in there. And the song is made up of bodhisattvas, masters of awareness, which are rig, in uh, Tibetan rigdens. You probably have seen that word, rigdens. Not the rigden kings. A different word, rigden king and rigdens, are actually different words in Tibet, believe it or not. And other spiritually advanced beings, other than Buddhists, whose nature is such that they are on the paths of learning or no more learning. Individuals function as sources of refuge in two ways, either as causal factors or as resultant states. Taking refuge in the causal sense means to take refuge by regarding the Buddha as the teacher, the Bible as the path, the song as companions, while one traverses that path. Taking refuge in the results and sense means to take refuge while focusing on the fruition, which is the with these three objects of refuge and body, what they do in body, which one will experience in the future. So they are, these are ways of referring to two frames of reference of causal factors and their fruition. For an extensive treatment, you can read my other book called The Supreme Chariot of Definitive Meaning. And we did read parts of his Supreme Chariot when we read through Long Chen Po's uh, Precious Treasury. No, what was it? The... Uh, Finding rest in the nature of mind, the trilogy. The, Derek, uh, Derek, where are you uh, in the text? I'm, in, I'm on the top of 67 now, page 67. Four axioms of a Buddha star as follows everything uh, compounded is impermanent. You know, we, we have shorthand for these. We say everything is impermanent. This is not true. Everything compounded is impermanent because there are uncompounded things which we'll see soon. Everything that is corruptible produces suffering. We say that everything is suffering. Again, that's not true. It's, a, it's shorthand. Everything that's corruptible means everything that has been corrupted by ignorance that doesn't understand the nature of reality is suffering. All phenomena are empty and have no independent nature, and nirvana is a complete state of peace. All that is compounded, every phenomena produced through cause and conditions are permanent. They are called impermanent because they are produced in the present moment, but do not endure into the second. Skipping the quote, phenomena that are characterized as being of samsara, that is corruptible, do not transcend the natural cause and effect process of suffering. Skipping the, the verse, he says, to elaborate, samsara is a state of suffering. I thought that was the funniest line in the whole book so far. He says that's to elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> to elaborate some sorrows, a state of suffering. He has such a sense of humor, Long Chen, but it's subtle. You got to like really watch it for it. Uh, skipping the quote, he says, none of the phenomena included in universal appearances and possibilities of samsara and nirvana have an identity because they have no independent nature of their own. That's being nothing that makes them what they are. Okay, so we've sort of taken these uh, for granted. You know, we, we can accept, we all acknowledge uh, impermanence and suffering and um, know that things are uh, insubstantial but no independent nature that's one that we need to actually come back to and that one in particular will be the uh, axiom upon which all the Buddhist tenet systems revolve 
all the Buddhist tenet systems will will refine and revolve around the emptiness of all phenomena, the absence of independent entity of all phenomena, not about suffering, not about impermanence, not about anything else. They have different paths too, but it's really that fourth one that, well, if, if you if you look at the way he presented them, he said uh, up at the top of 67, the four axioms, everything compounded is impermanent, everything that is corruptible produces suffering. All phenomena are empty and have no independent nature. Now, traditionally, this is presented as all phenomena are insubstantial, like a bamboo shoot or a plantain tree that are solid on the outside but uh, empty on the inside because things can be cut up and divided up infinitely and they, you can't find any inner essence. That's different than things having no independent nature. And that's a very important distinction. So there's actually two parts to this axiom that in some places are separated as separate axioms. And the, and the independent ent- nature axiom replaces the uh, nirvana as peace. Anyway, <clears throat> an analysis of the Buddhist systems on page 68. Uh, we have clause-based approaches. And within that, there's two philosophical systems, the Hinayana and the Mahayana. And within the Hinayana, roughly speaking, there are three philosophical systems, the Vatsiputriya system, and the Vaibhashika, and the Sautrantika. So first he goes through the Vatsiputriyas, and we're starting to run out of time, but okay. When the Buddha was about to pass into Nirvana, he's talking about there was this last guy that he entered into the order, sort of interesting situation because he didn't give him the standard formulation of uh, like saying three times and click your heels and so forth. But he just said, come here. And they all considered, I'm sorry for being so blasphemous. Uh, they, they all considered that he had entered the order formally. And that was a big deal. It's like, did he enter? Did he enter the order when the Buddha said, come here? Because there's this process when you become a monastic where the preceptor has to say, do you uh, leave the, the uh, worldly life of the householders and go into the, the homeless state? They do it three times. You know, you have to say yes and so forth. But here it was like done very <clears throat> informally and they... Anyway, it's not a big point. The, you know, the point is that they that they made such a big point over the wording of the, the way of doing it. Anyway, the teacher, Fatsi Putra, asked the Buddha whether the individual self is the same as the mind-body aggregates, the skandhas, or distinct from them, or both, or neither. The Buddha's answer was to say nothing at all. Now, he's about to pass into nirvana. I mean, give the guy a break, right? <laughs> and uh, so the, the, this guy Matsu Putra inter- he could have just said I covered that already right I know he could have <laughs> a number of times bug off you know ask, ask somebody else ask Ananda yeah right <laughs> hey Ananda the guy you know it's the, it's the self question again 
and he figures it's because the self is indescribable. And so they love this school. All the suit, all the, the tenant systems love this school because these guys, these jokers in this school actually believe that they're Buddhists, even, even though they believe there's a self. And they believe the self is indescribable. So, you know, he, he explains their view that there's a self that's the accumulator of karma. Partially it's because of this little nuance where they think they're Buddhists, they've taken refuge in the Buddha, but they don't quite understand all four axioms. And the way that they misunderstand the axio, the, that axiom about an independent you know, self is very interesting because they, they say, well, there's got to be somebody that's the accumulator of the karma and the enjoyer of karma. And otherwise, who is that? So, so they're just like us, essentially. Actually, they are, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so in that sense, we should appreciate them as being, even though they don't quite hang with that fourth axiom, but they do represent where we're coming from. Exactly. They're like the starting point for all. You know, and it's so cool that he put them in here because usually they just do Vaibhashika and Saujantika. But I, I think that's why he might have put them in there is because... Because in, in in a way they do represent us, where we're sort we sort of like cling to this notion of like, okay, yeah, there's no ego, there's no well, there's no you know, true self that's unchanging, independent, and whatever. I, you know, you guys repeat this list. I, I'm not really into that, but, uh, but you know, I mean, I do something one day, and then then the next day I get the the karma. You know, it's very clear. How can you deny that? Anyway, so Longchamp says their position is not a sound one. In fact, it's downright unintendable because the refutation of the self being something permanent does not constitute a proof that it is some impermanent thing. (laughs) I I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's the translator, but that didn't really do it for me. The refutation of its being some impermanent thing depends on the proof of its being some permanent thing. I was befuddled by this. The most I can make out of it is that I think he's trying to say, or he said, and the translator sort of didn't necessarily do it right, but I think that the point is that they're saying that it's an impermanent thing. So they're saying, well, there is a self that enjoys the, the results of karma, and, and we're not saying it's permanent, so we're not going against that axiom. And we're not saying, you know, that it's not suffering. We agree it's suffering, but it has the nature of being what it is as a self, and it's an impermanent thing. <clears throat> so they put, Which, again, is we pretty much have that view, too, that we're impermanent. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, the same person as you were when you were eight. We're all like, well, yes and no, you know. I've changed, but there's in some way I'm in the same. And it, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Lord. It's it's exactly the same that we all are of that. Anyway, how is it possible for something to be either eternal nor? <clears throat> That's the the crux that all the schools will will uh, debate on endlessly. Really, the Vibhashika system. So here he lays out the scheme of what are called the five bases, uh, which he'll follow in uh, the subsequent school. So I just want you to be clear, uh, those of you that haven't studied your Abhidharma or maybe don't uh, remember them, 
the abdomen that well. Let's see if we can go through those with you. <laughs> you guys see this this little chart here? Okay, so on this chart we have form, is group one of the five bases. There's mind, it's group two. Mental factors is group three. This thing that uh, usually is called non-associate formations. Uh, but uh, he's doing, he's using different language here. So if you flip your pages briefly as I, I go through them on the bottom of 69, we have the basis, bases of form. So the same term form. On the next page, we have bases of mind. So here I'm calling that primary mind. Then he has bases of mental states. Here it's called mental factors. And then we have distinct formative factors. That's this odd little category that here is called non-associated formations. And then we have uncompounded un uh, phenomena, which is uncreated things. And that's groups five, group five. So you have these five groups, form, mind, mental factors, non-associated or distinct formative, and uncreated. Those are the five. And then we have the details of these. And he's going to go through them in some detail, but uh, let's see. So, and all the, all the discussions of uh, the ground, he's going to go through these systems in terms of what's their ground, What's their path and what's their fruition of the Savtrantika and the Vibhashika and the Chitta Mantra and the Madhyamaka? All of them he goes, he'll go through the traditional schemes to go through ground, path, and fruition. And ground is what are the realities that they take as uh, true? And that is the five the five bases. Now the five bases are not exactly the five skandhas, right? Because uncompounded phenomena are not one of the skandhas. So in the skandhas we have form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So as we go through them, we'll see how those match and don't match. They're related and similar, but they're significantly enough different that it's, it uh, requires uh, paying attention to them. So forms the first group uh, so on the bottom of 69 let's see the shravaka adherents of the system of the vibhashikas proponents of distinct substantial entities believe that there are five bases of the knowable which are different kinds of substantial entities the bases of form mind mental states distinct formative factors and uncompounded phenomena the first group includes forms that are visible and physically obstructive these constitute the obvious matter produced by the combination of minute indivisible particles of earth, water, fire, and air, particles that are ultimately real entities with space intervening between them. So the four great elements are the first of the, uh, the forms. Forms that are not visible but are obstructive include the five sense faculties. 
So first we had earth, water, fire, and air. And then we have this, this things, these things that are not visible but are obstructed. So the, the visual sense faculty, you can't see the sense faculty. It's subtle matter and it resides in the eyeball, but it's not perceptible. And yet it's obstructed because it has entity. It has material entity. So things can't just pass through it. So they come up with this idea that there's invisible matter, matter that can't be seen by the human eye, which we all, science agrees with. There's sound waves, there's things that we smell that are floating around the air. You know, we don't see what we smell. We don't see what we hear. Uh, you know, touch is a little dubious, but they include touch in there as well. So anyway, the five sense faculties are the, the uh, perceptive subtle matter that dwells in the organs. And then there's sounds, odors, tastes, and tactile sensations, which are the four sense objects that are not visible to the eye. Then there's this odd category, forms that are neither visible nor obstructive, uh, but which extend throughout the body like a fire spreading through a forest, are subsumed under the headings of ordination, the antithesis of ordination, and partial cases. So they have this odd idea that if you take a vow, the vow is a material substance, but it's not visible and it's not a Destructive. <laughs> if you take a full vow, then it, it, you can, uh, it's this thing called the uh, ordination. And then if you break your vow, it's called the antithesis of ordination. And partial is like you partially hold your vow and you partially don't. But the idea is that they can see that in other people, people who have the higher uh, perceptions the uh, supernormal powers can see whether somebody has taken ordination or not. And uh, so when you take ordination, it creates a physical entity in your body. And the transmission of ordination is uh, a physical entity. So they have this odd tradition of that. When you take ordination, you can't have another physical object between you and the preceptor. And it has to be done in person. It can't be done over Zoom. It says that specifically in the, in the original text that ordination cannot be done by Zoom. Uh, Derek, I, th I thought uh, vows were also NAFs or non-associated formations. I've never seen them as NAFs. No? That's it. Yeah. Well, let's see if it pops up. Okay. You know, in the earlier schools where they're not NAFs, maybe in some other the higher schools they're NAFs. But is this the only school that thinks of vows as being material? I think the Sautrogicus too view them that way. We'll see. Mm -hmm. I remember to anyway of the minute indivisible particles which he said were made up of fire, water, air, and uh, beer. No, earth, water, water, earth, water, fire, and air. Uh, uh, let's see. Of the minute indivisible particles, more of those in the external world are of eight kinds. 
and this is the coolest thing. And uh, Mipom goes through this in his uh, uh, Gateway to Knowledge. Uh, explains it a little bit more thoroughly, but uh, particles of the four elements and particles of color, odor, taste, and tactile sensation. So all matter that we experience is the conglomeration of tiny, minute, indivisible particles separated by space. And all matter has at least a, a conglomeration of these eight particles, of the four element particles, one of each, and then color, odor, taste, and tactile sensations. And then some matter particles also have the tactile faculty of the body involves these eight and a ninth kind of uh, particle, that of the tactile faculty itself. Not the sensation, but the faculty. The other sense faculties, such as the visual, in addition to the foregoing nine kinds of particles, involve a tenth, that of the respective faculty. So for particles of matter that can be felt, they have the basic eight plus the tactile faculty. For particles of matter that can be seen, they have the basic eight plus the tactile, the ninth plus this visual faculty. Don't ask me to explain this. That's just the way it is. <laughs> you gotta put it together somehow, you know, Lori. Well, I mean, they're trying to explain their world, right? And they're trying to do it in sort of a, a very thorough way, but and what they have is what they see, right? So... <laughs> You can't see the minute indivisible particles. But I was with you up until then, and I'm still... <laughs> well, I, I actually give them credit for coming up with minute individual particles, because ultimately that's what we, you know, Western science came up with as well. So it's kind of... Big time, definitely. Good, good for them, you know. They, they're trying to explain cause and effect, I think. And they, you know... Our, uh, our our chart of the elements, right? The organic chart. What's it called? Right. In chemistry. Right. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called. Yeah, there's <laughs> the periodic table periodic of the elements. Periodic table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, we got it. <laughs> plus, plus, they seem to uh, delve into what we understand now is matter is also energy, and energy is as much matter as. Where? Where do they go into energy? Well, they go into these things that these things that are ethereal that can't be um, seen and and necessarily touched, like the vows and stuff. But they're matter. They're, they're matter. still particles. Yeah, they're still particles. Uh, and and all of physics uh, uh, grapples with particles being energy and energy being particles, wave energy. There's well, that's no, the wave-particle duality, but they're not talking about that. They, they they're just talking about particles. No, but they're talking about things that um, seem to me to, to also include other types of matter that aren't well, they have a They have an expanded idea of matter. That That is very much and, true. Yeah. And yeah. interestingly, uh, I don't know what the Judeo tradition says about vows, but 
it, seem, it seems to me that the Christians uh, picked up a lot of this notion of of vows um, and uh, uh, people who take vows and whether that's something that is expressed physically and can be seen expressed physically. Mm -hmm. I wondered, yeah, I wondered if they did said that about vows to try to explain again cause and effect of how a vow actually influences a person you know and so to give it a material basis you know because really how does that yeah. why does it change a person what's the cause causative factor there you know yeah. well there's a song about it that explains it pretty well actually I'm sure by what's her name material girl anyway <laughs> greeks the greeks so we're into uh adam that, that was a good one that was a good one. okay so then we have let's see uh <clears throat> so the by by because even though one attempts to do away with these minute particles by reducing them physically or deconstructing de deconstructing them rather with logic the mental concept of such particles is not eliminated this is a little bit of a bizarre statement where basically they're saying that the ideas the concepts are real as well and it didn't wasn't conveyed that well i believe in this statement but i know that just because other system texts tenant texts uh that's the idea by bashikas is that concepts are as real as matter believe it or not the Vaibhashikas take this continuity to be characteristic of the ultimate level of truth, and so consider these particles ultimately real entities. As for more obvious kinds of matter, by reducing them physically and analyzing their components, such as the, the uh, prototypical vase, which is the favorite object of Buddhist logicians, the vase. If you break a vase into many, many pieces, um, by, thereby reducing it physically and analyzing its component. What eliminates one's mental concept of there being a vase there. But for Vaibhashikas, this is characteristic of the relative level of truth. And so these are only relatively real things. So vases are relatively real things because the uh, reality of them and the idea of them can be destroyed by destroying the physical object. Whereas the uh, the atomic particles cannot be destroyed. Anyway, he uh, the mind is no longer occupied with what has been eliminated when reduced and evaluated by the mind. So uh, he's they're, they're capturing and they're both physical objects such as vases and also non-physical objects in this statement. As with the vase or water, there is existence on the relative level. The ultimate is otherwise. Anyway, the bases of mind are the six avenues of consciousness. And uh, when the five sense faculties perceive their five kinds of objects, the five respective sense consciousnesses cognize these objects. Consciousness as the coordinating mental faculty, the sixth consciousness ascertains past and future and analyzes entities in detail. You wouldn't know it, but they believe that past and future of entities exist, are real at all times. 
perspective is the past, present, and future of an entity that exists in all three times. And uh, the sense consciousnesses do not perceive their objects, right? The sense faculties perceive their objects. The sense consciousnesses do not. So the Vibhashika is a sort of a crude uh, early school that has some odd views. And the Sautrantikas correct these odd views and create a much more sophisticated system for perception and knowledge. Uh, let's see, the sense consciousnesses do not perceive their object because it would then follow that they would perceive something even if it were obstructed. Like if there's a vase behind a, a, t uh, a table and you don't see it, then the, the sense consciousness should be able to see it because consciousness is not obstructed by matter. They didn't, they didn't explain that little nuance. Consciousness, sense consciousness, because it's not matter, it's not obstructed by matter. So you can't hide a vase to a from a consciousness. But the sense faculties are matter, and so therefore other types of matter obstruct their experience. Of, I, I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but not a huge point. Uh, since consciousness is unimpeded, according to the same source, it is the vision along with its physical support that perceives forms and not the consciousness based on that faculty because when they're obstructed forms are not perceived <clears throat> so if you hide a form you can't hide some a form from a consciousness because consciousness goes beyond matter anyway there's 51 bases of mental <clears throat> states excuse me contact and, it, and these he's doing it by these groups Contact, focus, sensation, discernment, and attention. And these are what are called the five omnipresent mental factors. We have those here. The general faculties. He, he does a funny list. You know, it's like he's using the Mahayana list. I chose the, the Hinayana list and it's not matching up well. I'll, I'll circulate the other one to you. But anyway, the next group is intention, interest, mindfulness, meditative absorption, and understanding. And these are called the five object-oriented mental factors or bases of mental states. Because these are involved in identifying and cognizing an object. Faith, self-respect, modesty, absence of attachment, absence of aversion, absence of ignorance, diligence, pliancy, conscientiousness, impartiality, and absence of malice. These are the 11 virtuous mental factors, many of which are defined in the negative, absence of malice or absence of aggression, absence of attachment, absence of aversion. Now, that's the, that's the non-aggression, absence of ignorance. And the opposites, basically, or the root opposites, are the six root uh, negative mental factors. Desire, anger, pride, ignorance, belief in the reality of the perishable aggregates. That's code language for belief that the self is somehow construed from the five skandhas. Doubt. 
hatred, resentments, and then we have the 22 uh, subsidiary negative faculties, resentment, hypocrisy, spite, pretense, deception, envy, avarice, arrogance, malice, lack of self-respect, immodesty, lethargy, agitation, lack of faith, laziness, heedlessness, forgetfulness, distractedness, and inattentiveness. And then fourth, we have the four indeterminate ones that can go either way. They can be either negative or positive mental factors. Regret can lead one either way. Drowsiness is, depends on what else is going in your mind, going on in your mind. Conceptualization, same thing, and analysis. Same. Derek, the this the group before the last group. What did you did you give a generalized name for those? Twenty-two lesser negative mental factors. Lesser negative. Sorry, I missed that one. Thank you. So then he describes what are called the five congruent, usually called the five congruencies. The idea is that the the primary mind or uh, the consciousness. So so these are synonymous: primary mind, consciousness, main mind. Those are all synonyms. And then the following are synonyms. Mental states, mental faculties, mental formations, secondary mind. So there's a similarity between the primary mind or consciousness and the mental faculties and that they each have the five following, they each have the same uh, entity or sameness of the five following characteristics. One is uh, uh, the congruence of reference, in that they're both referring, the consciousness and the mental state are engaged with the same object. They're both referring to the same object at the same time. So if you have a visual consciousness and you're seeing something that you uh, experience desire for, which is the mental factor, both of them have the same object of reference, the visual consciousness and the desire. Let's see, there's a congruence of data that they ascertain similar data. They both apprehend the same object. <clears throat> so they both cognize the same thing and they both understand the same thing. They both are seeing uh, really good popcorn. Never heard that word data used. It seems like an odd. It's a really odd translation. You know, this this translator is amazing with Vajrayana, and in my very limited, humble opinion, he's not. He, I don't think he's that used to translating like early Buddhist school terms, Lama oh. type stuff. Huh. I yeah, think, I had that same question. Data. What? I wonder what the original word was. That he's translating, yeah. It's usually the, they apprehend the same object. Yeah. Mm. They have the same appearing object, <clears throat> reference object, and they have the same uh, apprehended object. There's a congruence of time in that they're, it's happening both at the same time. They're both experiencing their object at the same time. Congruence of support, they both depend on the same faculty as the governing factor. The eye sense faculty in the example I was using. 
and there's a congruence of substance, just as no more than one visual consciousness functions for a single individual at any one time, no more than it, no more than one of any given mental state, such as contact attendant on that consciousness can come about. Which is usually explained as uh, they both have the mind as uh, the basis or the visual, whatever uh, cognitive system is involved same for both the mind and the mental factor and consciousness observes its perceived object the perceived object of a given faculty it cognizes that object <clears throat> that's the first one the cognition of the object the referent earlier called the referent uh, Similarly, the mental states cognize the specific details of the object, that's the apprehended, or the data. Although the data of an object does not arise directly to either the mind or the mental state, the latter invariably functions simultaneously in a dualistic encounter between object and subject. So they have this congruence of time. Vaimashika professed that both mind and mental states constitute consciousness of the external world, but not that they constitute reflexive consciousness. So they, they hold that there's no such thing as reflexive consciousness, self-awareness, as it's usually translated as self-awareness. You wonder how they think of meditation. Well, the Madhyamakas don't believe in, in uh, self-awareness either. <laughs> So, is there a particular logic or reason why they don't? Um, they say you don't need you don't need self awareness. It's like the light bulb it doesn't light itself up. Mm -hmm. Well, is it is it because there is no self and therefore there's I mean that there's nothing to be reflexively aware of, or is it just you've added an unnecessary additional factor? If the visual consciousness doesn't comprehend its object, then what is it doing? That's their argument. Why do you need some self-awareness to be aware of what the visual consciousness is already supposed to be doing? Oh, they think it's redundant. They think it's redundant, thank you. And then you have an infinite regress. Well, then if you have self-awareness, then you have to have something to be self-aware. Right, mirror thing, hall of mirrors. Okay. Hmm. So our time is up. <laughs> I blabbing too much about so we didn't make it through so i did have a feeling this might happen as we get into the more uh, substantial more interesting important material so instead of pretending that we finished it and just going on we will resume where we started uh where we stopped <laughs> better to resume where we stopped so we just stopped at this distinct formative factors, one of the more conundrumous, how do you like that word, uh, parts of the whole Buddhist system. This idea of these uh, weird entities. <clears throat> and uh, if we fall, uh, you know, we, ha we have what, the end of Vaibhashika, and then we have Sautrantika to do. So we have like six pages. So we'll cover those. I'll probably adjust the uh, syllabi, syllabus rather. Probably every class I'll end up changing it just to drive you all crazy. It just means no breaks. Can't take any weeks off. That's right. <laughs>
no vacations, no rest for the wicked. Uh, let's dedicate that huge amount of merit that you guys accumulated by putting up with me. This merit may all obtain admissions, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy winds of birth, all day, sickness and death from the ocean of Samsara. May I free all beings. Thank you. Finally, we're getting into the good stuff. I, th I think the really interesting stuff. You know, the Buddha and the teacher, that was curious, you know, but this is this is the more real, the, the heart of the issue. Anyway, thank you very much. Nice thank you. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night.